as we start to be able to integrate these practices and bring them in a more substantial way, it has the power to really transform Judaism and the way we show up in the world, the way our communities and what those communities look like, how we practice our Judaism. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. I also want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, JLTV, Jewish Life Television Network. JLTV is a 24-7 cable and satellite television network delivering news, history, and entertainment. JLTV brings together the greatest voices from around the country, across the world, and from the Holy Land. Go to jltv.tv for stories that inspire. Welcome, everyone, to the Holy Sparks podcast. Saul K here. Super excited for this very unique episode, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But without further ado, let me edify my guest properly. Rabbi James Jacobson Mazel's PhD is the founder and executive director of Or Halev, Center for Jewish Spirituality and Meditation. He has been studying and teaching meditation and Jewish spirituality for more than 25 years. He received his PhD in Jewish studies from the University of Chicago and rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Daniel Landis, the Rosh Yeshiva of Pardes, and from the Beit Midrash for an Israeli rabbinate, a pluralistic ordination for Jewish leaders in Israel. He was the founding Rosh Yeshiva for Romimu Yeshiva and has taught and innovated programs in Jewish thought, mysticism, spiritual practices, and meditation at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, Haifa University, Yeshiva Hadar, and in a variety of settings around the world. He strives to integrate his study and practice and to help teach and live Judaism as a spiritual discipline. And I'm honored to call him one of my personal teachers and mentors. Welcome to the podcast, Rabbi James. Thank you, Saul. It's so great to be here with you. All right. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing just fine. Yes. Uh, lovely, lo- warm afternoon here in Israel. I love it. Okay. So for people that aren't familiar with you, why don't you talk a little bit about your youth growing up and in particular, you know, your Jewish journey from the beginning? I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, um, a child of South African immigrants. Uh, my parents had moved from South Africa to America. We were in rural Pennsylvania because the medical center for Hershey, for Penn State was there uh, in Hershey, and my dad taught there. Um, so I grew up uh, the only Jewish kid in my school uh, for a number of years, um, certainly the only Jewish kid in my class, and um, and with a vibrant, really active Jewish life with my family, and also going to nearby Jewish communities, and it felt very you know positive and beautiful, but also very small. I moved to the suburbs of Detroit as a teenager, and so that was a big shift in a much more extensive Jewish community and and, and Jewish presence there. Um, went to Israel for a year before college on your course, um, and then came back to college at Brown. And it's really at Brown that I started um, without knowing knowing it at that point, but exploring really Jewish spirituality uh, in a deep way. Um, I started meditating there for the first time. I became interested in, you know, in very small ways, in Hasidic and Kabbalistic texts and 
styles of prayer that were more ecstatic and moving and um you know spirit-filled than the ones that i'd grown up with and so that's really where that you know that transition and shift and also exploration started to happen beautiful jewish day school or public school i forgot to ask that public school public school great okay and then uh, at what point in your you know collegiate journey did the rabbinate or jewish studies become your focus yeah, so in my undergraduate, I did a double major in philosophy and in Jewish studies. So that was already a passion and interest of mine. Um, but it definitely was not, I was not thinking about a course towards the rabbinate. Um, I, you know, at one point that I was going on to do philosophy seriously and become a professor, or I applied and got this scholarship to go to Oxford where I was going to do a master's in philosophy. And from there, you know, who knows whatever the next steps were. Um, but I had some significant shifts in, in my life and experience at the end of, of college. Um, I had a series of physical injuries, uh, which were difficult and included not being able to type or write at all. So I had to do everything by voice. Um, for those who do things by voice, this was before the kind of uh, more contemporary way where you can just like speak and it'll write the words down for you. This was stopping after each word. And so it was quite challenging and a lot of psychological pain and suffering came up. And so I was having a lot of physical suffering, a lot of mental suffering. Um, I was, you know, deeply into my Jewish life, which was really sustaining and rich and beautiful. And I was suffering tremendously. And um, one of my physical therapists actually suggested meditation. So that's how I started practicing, having a hard time sleeping. And I did it, and it was very powerful. And it was immediately clear that this was a huge shift in the way I related to the world. You know, that all of a sudden I was being given this way of facing my experience and welcoming it with love and compassion, rather than, which I didn't even know I'd been doing, you know, it wasn't that I was aware I'd been doing it, but rather than running away from it and hiding it or pushing it away. And so that was a profound shift. You know, that was a profound, profound, profound shift in my experience. And that was the beginning of a sort of sustained, formal spiritual practice. I'd, I'd clearly been interested before. There were things that I had read, which sort of touched things in me and opened my heart. Prayer had been very important for me. Um, but what I would say is prayer was a solace and a place of comfort, but it wasn't a way out. It wasn't a way out of my suffering. And when I got introduced to meditation, for the first time, it was something that was really, something that was really a way out. Um, and so I went from there to Oxford to do this master's in philosophy, but by the time I got there, you know, you apply for these things like a year before you do them, you know, it's not a long process, but by the time I got there, I just, that's not where I was, you know, my fire was out. I, it was too intellectual. It was too disconnected. Um, I sort of tried to do it, but it fairly quickly became obvious that this was not going to work. You know, this was not where my heart was. And that was a, that itself was a major piece and very important piece to really for the first time to fail at something and to have something that I was intending to do and realize I can't do this you know this is this is not going to happen was really incredibly liberating incredibly liberating incredibly freeing um also challenging to get there but but once getting there feeling like oh whew, I can let that go and that can be okay the world is not going to fall apart at the same time I had really started practicing seriously I sort of started that at Brown but then at Oxford I was really practicing very deeply and seriously, and it was beautiful. So there was a lot of joy that was coming up, a lot of 
spaciousness, also still a lot of suffering, you know, complexity, um, but to really feel the shift of what that practice had to offer. Um, and so I switched to continue Jewish studies. I was there, they were willing to do it. It was something I felt passionate about and that I could just keep sort of delving and exploring. I ended up writing my master's thesis on Hasidism. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I first started to really delve into those texts in a, in a more serious way for the first time. And from there, I went to learn in yeshiva in Israel, not because I had any plan at that point. I had sort of, all my plans had fallen apart. I just knew that there was a calling for me to do that. And I really wanted to, to deepen in that way. Um, so I went to learn at the conservative yeshiva in Jerusalem. Mm. I also then learned at the Hartman Institute. It was a very beautiful experience, uh, passionate, you know, complex. My meditation practice kept on flourishing and growing. And there I started reading really inside Hasidic and Kabbalistic texts seriously for the first time, you know, really spending time with them. And, and that was beautiful for me. It was beautiful in terms of uh, the felt experience of it. And also beautiful because it's the first time really already at, at Oxford and then in Yeshiva of really encountering texts which spoke to me in terms of worldview, in terms of theologically. You know, before then, I've been very engaged Jewishly, but it was clear to me that the ways I'd been introduced to, the ways people spoke about God, just were not, didn't seem relevant to me. You know, it's just, you know, it was, they were interesting, you know, but it was not, it was not touching my heart, certainly. And it was nothing that I could feel committed to, you know, that just wasn't the case. And all of a sudden these other narratives and myths and theologies, um, especially the notion of sort of brokenness and repair and the Kabbalah, and especially in Hasidism, the notion of everything being the divine, that we could really open to an experience everything being the divine. And in particular, the way that was dovetailing with my meditation experiences. So uh, my experience was I would read Hasidic texts, which are heavy on description and sort of you know, opening you up to a way of seeing, but light sometimes on, on the particular practices to get there. Mm. But I was feeling like, oh, I know what they're talking about because I'm having this experience of meditation. You know, this is, this is part of what I'm experiencing. This is part of what I'm seeing. That was very beautiful. That was quite beautiful and powerful. And at a certain point, um, in, I remember the day I was sitting in yeshiva, learning the Hasidic text by the Maggid of Mezrich, which is this very clear sense. I was like, oh, if I could do this for the rest of my life, that would be good. <laughs> I don't know what that looked like, what that would look like, but it was, a, it was you know, it felt like this would be deeply meaningful. I love it. Can I pause you for one sure. question? Because you said something a couple minutes ago that was very profound, and I really want you to unpack it in a way yeah. that's meaningful for the listeners. So here's what you said. Tell me if I heard this correctly. You said prayer wasn't essentially getting you out of your suffering at this point. And I'm rewinding the story a minute, but meditation did. So I would yeah. love for you, if you can, can you unpack that a little bit? Because I think it'd be Absolutely, yeah. What I'll say is that my prayer life and prayer experience was beautiful. There were moments of release because there was just, you know, beauty and song and things that felt meaningful. And um, it wasn't a technique that was really shifting my experience of myself or of the world, you know, where I was sort of all of a sudden showing up in a different way or understanding things in a different way. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's impossible, you know, but I'm saying in terms of how I was trained in prayer and the way prayer was introduced to me and the way we were doing it, it wasn't having an impact. And when I started meditating, there were many insights and revelations that happened. But I think one of the most powerful ones 
which is recognizing that I was um, shut down. I was suffering. I was turned off mostly, turned off in the sense of numbed out, not really experiencing life because my system was overwhelmed. And my system was doing that because it was overwhelmed for all kinds of various reasons, you know, history, psychological reasons, et cetera. You know, it was, it couldn't handle, you know, what was happening inside of me. Mm. And what happened in meditation was that I was given this very concrete technique to meet what was happening inside of me with love and compassion and acceptance. And what I noticed when I did that was that, wow, when I welcome this difficulty in, it transforms the difficulty. Because a huge percentage of that difficulty is my resistance to it, actually. There's a thing that's happening itself, but there's these layers and layers of resistance. And so when I start to welcome that with love and care, right, not in a way that's that's masochistic, you know, but it's like, oh, sweetheart, I can be with you. Welcome in. Let's just sit together. And I'll say very clearly, that was very hard, especially at the beginning. You know, I started with five minutes a night, five minutes a night. Mm-hmm. And then... You know, the next month it was 10 minutes and the next month it was 15 minutes and it it built and built over a few months until I was sitting, you know, 45 minutes a day in a pretty steady way for the first number of years of my practice. One caveat that would be useful for people to hear as well. So I know you're, you're referencing at this point more sort of psychological pain, mental angst, et cetera, but were you also in physical pain? You mentioned some physical pain. Okay. That's what, yeah. So I'm talking about that's that's a great, great question. So this is true of both physical and psychological pain and psychological pain. So even in our physical pain, the level of our physical pain, um, it's, I mean, it's, it may be hard to sort of, without doing it, it feels like that sounds weird, but even our physical pain, Mm -hmm. what we call pain, let's say a pain in my back, which I had and the pain in the shoulders, Mm -hmm. uh, a huge percentage of that pain is actually our resistance to the pain. Mm. And even on the physical level, as we drop that resistance, as we welcome it in with care and love, then that physical pain starts to dissipate and dissolve. Not necessarily 100%, although sometimes it can be 100%, um, but there's just some more space. You know, there's some more ability to be with the experience as it is. Mm. And as we do that more drastically and dramatically, the healing gets stronger. I mean, I'll share one experience, I was working very, very powerfully, especially with anxiety. That was probably the the main sort of psychological experience I was having. And my anxiety was sort of like a blanket covering everything, you know, it was sort of, uh, you know, sort of a kind of pillow between me and the world, you know, blocking out the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember after I've been practicing for about maybe a year, year and a half, something like that, two years, but quite intensively, um, having this anxiety arise as a sort of like green monster, which was just coming to like eat me alive. And in that moment, my practice was strong. And I just said, okay, eat me. Like you can have me. <laughs> There's no resistance here. You want to eat me? Take a bite, you know? And then it just disappeared. You know, anxiety just poof. Like it, for that, in that moment, I'm not saying it didn't come back, you know, but in that moment, it just dissolved. And that was quite a powerful experience of really seeing directly the way this shift in practice could bring this kind of deep liberation. I love it. So it's very powerful that you bring that up. And, and then a follow-up question I wanted to ask you in terms of your upbringing and what was normative for prayer for you, you were raised conservative, Orthodox. I wasn't, I didn't get that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was raised traditional conservative. You know, my parents grew up Orthodox. We went to a very traditional conservative Sure. 
Okay. Uh, so, you know, the liturgy is indistinguishable from the Orthodox liturgy. Uh, you know, that's sort of, that's what I grew up with and was raised with. Right. Um, at college, there was already a little bit more exploration, song, uh, some pieces of chanting, uh, which were definitely uh, vibrant parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The reason why I ask that is because, it, you know, I've, I've talked to several guests on this podcast that have had deep prayer practices, very, you know, solid education, and yet somehow it didn't, it, it wasn't able to transform them in the way that you're speaking of meditation. Now, I'm certainly not making a blanket statement to say that that can't happen. For sure it can. But in, in, in their experience, and it sounds like in your experience as well, meditation unlocked something else for you. That's right. Directly. That's right. Okay. So uh, at this point, you are now living in Israel, and you are, I think, back to the story, the storyline here, you were at a conservative yeshiva, if I understand correctly. And then... Did you end up at Pardes or kind of what? Tell me the, the journey there. Yeah. So then I was, I had this re, sort of revelation that, oh, I could do this for the rest of my life and that would be really good, you know? And uh, and I started thinking, well, how could I do that for the rest of my life? <laughs> it was not clear what that path would be. And it seemed like PhD was the right path or really the only path I knew of where I could sort of get funded and continue to read these, read these texts, you know, in a fairly full-time way. I didn't see any other t- path. Um, and so I started thinking about that seriously. And on the way, and this is really, I think, part of my own path and also part of maybe my resistance to parts of my path, you know, sort of on the way, I was like, oh, well, there's this other stuff I should learn before I do that. It's the same stuff I have to learn for smicha, for ordination. Maybe I should get smicha on the way, you know, <laughs> without really taking it as a serious life choice or path. Um, so I was very lucky at that time. Uh, Rav Landis at Pardes was just opening up a sort of traditional smicha program for both um, men and women, uh, which I was committed to doing, only doing something that a woman could do as well. Um, and so I was lucky enough to to be part of that, to be part of the first, you know, we were the first cohort of that. Um, so it was called the Kolel at, at Pardes at that point. It was a beautiful, deep learning experience. My, my meditation practice on the side continued to deepen. And it really took me a number of years, I think, until I came to recognize what I think was probably there subconsciously, (laughs) which was that there was uh, a passion to be a kind of spiritual teacher and presence. And that was probably part of my interest in doing rabbinic path, even if I wasn't yet at the point where I was willing to really recognize that to myself. I got it. And so for you, it it was almost like your becoming a rabbi was more learningly schmott just because you were interested in other things you had this great opportunity but it wasn't like hey i want to become a congregational rabbi that wasn't really in your in your mind at that that was definitely not it was never to become a congregational rabbi i know you know if anything was going to be an educator or something like that like that just never crossed my mind not in a negative way it's just that that was not part of the conception at all that's right and and my plan was i was sort of doing this on the way to the phd and then i did a phd and you know, we'd see that where that would lead. Okay. Now, another very interesting part of your story is, um, you know, many people that I know that have been meditating for a long time have had a long series of mentors and teachers that essentially show them what to do or were guides. But it seems to me, from what I'm hearing in your story, you were, you know, pretty self-directed or were there guides along the way? There were definitely guides along the way and I was very self-directed. You know, uh, whether that's for good or for bad. Uh, I, you know, I had teachers, I went on retreats. Those were certainly impactful moments for me. I did a lot of reading and a lot of self-discovery and guiding. 
I practiced, you know, significantly, significantly what I would call the Western mindfulness world, you know, or sort of Western Buddhist world. So places like Inside Meditation Society, you know, that that kind of, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, Jack Kornfield, Tara Brack, um, that kind of world. Although with time, that really expanded into lots of different realms, both within the Buddhist world and within other worlds. Um, but at the same time, and this is really connected to the work I was doing in yeshiva and then, you know, on my own during my smicha process and afterwards in my doctorate, I was really investigating um, Jewish practices in Judaism, you know, spiritual practices in Judaism. What did meditation look like? What are all the cultivation techniques like? What do death contemplation practices look like? Right. So, and I was, you know, accessing them often through the lens or through the background of having done some of these practices in other traditions or in parallel traditions. And so I had a kind of access to them that I think other people and certainly other researchers didn't, you know, because I'd actually done these things concretely and would, and would do them. And as I researched these things, I'd also do them, you know, so I would never just read about them, but I was doing them. And so that part was, you know, yes, was sort of entirely self-taught. I didn't really know anybody who was, you know, later I learned there were some other people who were doing certain pieces like that, but I didn't know any of them. Um, and so uh, I was really doing those pieces on my mm. own. I'm thinking of like maybe Rabbi Arya Kaplan, the pe- people like that. Exactly, right. So Arya Kaplan had done some stuff. I didn't know about that till much later, although I'm not, still not clear how much uh, Rabbi Kaplan was like really practicing versus talking about it. And there were people doing things in a newer world, you know, Reb Zalman, you know. Uh, so there are definitely, there were people around, uh, but in my world, which was not those worlds, um, I didn't know those people. Um, and so that was very, very much experimental and self-directed and really trying trying a number of things out. I love it. Okay. How would you say, I mean, it's, it's hard to say after 25 years, but, you know, in terms of prayer life and, and the rest of your life, how has meditation really affected your life? Well, meditation has transformed my life. I mean... Um, you know, some of the most concrete, most concrete pieces, as you know, when I started practicing, I was in a lot of suffering and that's just not true. You know, it's not like I never suffer, but, uh, most of the time I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> like, you know, life feels good. There's not a lot of anxiety. It's not, that there's never there, but you know, it's infrequent. And that itself is just a massive shift in just my basic state of being and how I'm relating to the world, you know, a huge, huge shift. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of that is that there's a whole shift in the way I kind of see the world, relate to it, understand it. What's the role of compassion? How can I meet my experience? How can other people meet their experience? What can I offer to them? What will the world look like if there were some more expansiveness, some more openness, some more heartfulness in the way we approach our lives and our experience? If, you know, again, some very simple things like stress and having too much to do and getting things done. So I still have too much to do. <laughs> Running a small organization, there's way too much to do. In the past, that was very, very stressful for me. Again, when things get particularly intense, it's not like that never happens. But for the most part, it's like, okay, there's a lot to do. And I'm going to do what I can. You know, and there's a lot more space and freedom and playfulness. Third thing I would say is really that sense of flexibility, playfulness, experimentation, joy, delight. You know, my practice has shifted and grown in many ways. A lot of my practice right now is opening to a sense of divinity and sacred. It's the sense of the wonder of the world and of myself and of each moment. 
it's more accessible. And so there's really a lot more mundane delight that's just part of my life. I'm not in some special big like, oh, you know, peak experience. That can happen too, and certainly on retreats and stuff. But I'm just talking about being around. You know, right now I'm, I'm looking at my window for a second and I can see the, you know, the, the leaves on the trees and feel a sense of delight in a way which was just not available to me during my practice, whether because I was blocked because of the difficult emotions, but also just because that way of seeing and being was not as accessible and hadn't been cultivated as much. And so now it's just, it's just much more on the tip of my tongue that ability to stop from it and just shift into that perspective and see that delightfulness and openness and playfulness and vibrancy, you know, of the world and of myself. It's of course transformed what I do in the world. You know, I never, I do not imagine growing up or even in those early years when I was doing it, that this is what I would be doing with my life. You know, I had no, I had no idea that that would be the case. Actually, something that sort of developed slowly, slowly as I started sort of doing things and offering this to other people in a very sort of just um, first sort of intuitive and natural and sort of unplanned way. Um, and so it's, you know, it's foundational to everything I do. It's foundational to my life, my work, the way I'm with my family, the way I'm with my community. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so why don't you talk a little bit about Orhalev, how it started and, and what it is for people not familiar. So Orhalev is a center for Jewish spirituality and meditation. And really what it is, is it's trying to offer everything we've just been talking about, a way of deep Jewish practice that is life transforming that opens us up to the sanctity and delight of this moment in this world, which helps us heal our suffering, which helps us create deeper relationships, which helps us show up in our lives in ways which are more present, more compassionate, more healing, um, and just have deeper and more meaningful relationships. Uh, The way we do that is through a number of modalities. So we offer our retreats, physical in-person retreats and online retreats in North America, in Israel, and in England. We offer a series of classes and courses that you can take. These vary from, I have a weekly sitting group on Wednesdays. You can go and check that out on our site and anybody's welcome to just drop in where we practice together. I do a little bit of teaching and then there's some time for question and answer and reflection together. We have a series of upcoming courses that happen at different moments. We have um, coming up a what we call a Sukkot journey, so sort of a, a course over Sukkot to the experience, the beauty of that time. There's an upcoming class on sacred action, which is about really integrating practice into social justice work. Now we can do that and help support ourselves in doing that powerful work in the world. So all kinds of different topics and subjects. Uh, we have some local uh, sitting groups where people are meditating and practicing together and providing resources, you know, and um, and information. Our retreats happen throughout the year. Uh, we'd love you to join us on one. I'll just say we have a pre-Yom Kippur retreat happening the few days before Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. uh, which is a virtual retreat. So you can join it from anywhere on any schedule or be running the whole time. And uh, we'll have some beautiful teachings about what it means to show up for Yom Kippur, what it means to rediscover ourselves, to go through the process of tshuva, of forgiveness, of self-discovery. Um, we started really because... Um, I had started teaching some of this material um, in informal ways, in the places I was learning, doing a class. I started teaching a course on Jewish spiritual practices at Pardes, where um, we not only read texts on practices, but actually did the practices as well, which certainly in terms of where I was, I don't know if anybody else is doing that. You know, nobody else had done that. So that was sort of a new way to approach learning, to actually be doing the practices and then reflecting on them together. And there was a real interest and passion to do a retreat. Um, and I encountered a Rabbi Jeff Roth, 
you know, who's done wonderful and groundbreaking work in this area. And we connected and then ran the first retreat of its kind in Israel. You know, the first Jewish meditation retreat, the first Jewish mindfulness retreat in Israel. Wow. When was that? What year was that? And that was in 2010, I think. I'm bad with dates, so it could be nine, it could be 11, somewhere around there. And that was a powerful experience, you know, powerful. And it really felt like, wow, okay, this is what I want to do. I mean, this, this was so beautiful and so powerful to be able to support people in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the beginnings. You know, it started off very slowly, just starting to do retreats, then recognizing if we're going to do this, we really need some kind of support, some background to really make this possible. And that's how the organization started. We started expanding. Uh, we started playing with new modalities. And then you know, at a certain point realized, okay, this is serious. We need to create really a vision and how we're going to take this forward and how, you know, from my perspective, the sky's the limits in terms of that there's a, a thirst in the world for this. Not everybody knows about it. Not everybody's tasted it. You know, when people come in our retreats, you know, 99.9% uh, feel blown away by the experience. And so we know we have something really powerful to offer. And the question is, how do we make that accessible to people? And I will say that Corona threw us for a loop and really threw us into the virtual retreat world in a way that we had never done. Um, and so that was an extraordinary shift and an amazingly, incredibly successful I had, you know, if you had told me before Corona that we should do a virtual retreat, I would have probably said, that's crazy. <laughs> that sounds like a terrible idea. Uh, but the reality we learned is that people have had extremely powerful experiences on virtual retreats, have been able to go very deep and be really supported. And so that's become another piece of what we offer. Yes, I can attest, having been on the retreat with you virtually, my first one of six days, the 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 level of 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 depth that is not limited by zoom quick question are these retreats in english or hebrew or both and is there different options yeah great so obviously the ones in north america and england are in english um in israel about 60 percent of our retreats are in hebrew and 40 percent are in english maybe 70 30 you know that shifts all the time so something like that so the majority are in hebrew but we also have ones in english and for the most part whenever we do one in one language we have simultaneous translation into the other um, so, you know, you could come on Hebrew if you're an English speaker or vice versa, if you're a Hebrew speaker. I love it. And what's your long-term vision for Or Halef? Where do you see it going? You know, what I really feel is that this way of practicing and being Jewish has the potential to, first of all, transform the lives of individuals who participate in it. Mm-hmm. And through that, in just a you know, automatic way to transform the lives of their families and communities and all the people they're interacting with. And I know that's been true in my life. You know, it's certainly transformed how I am as a parent and partner and community member. Mm-hmm. And as we start to be able to integrate these practices and bring them in a more substantial way, it has the power to really transform Judaism and the way we show up in the world, the way our communities and what those communities look like, how we practice our Judaism, how we meet meet the intense and tremendous crises and challenges of our time, you know, whether that's democracy or climate or you know, the many challenges that I think we're experiencing right now in the world. And I think if we can meet them through this lens of practice and care and connection, uh, that's going to make a huge, huge difference. And so my vision is that Oralev can grow into a real mature ecosystem mm. that can provide 
ways of integrating with this form of practice to many different people in many different circumstances, movements, ways of practicing and connecting to their Judaism. You know, uh, you can do this in many different ways. We don't have an agenda about, you know, how you do it, what, you know, if you end up going to this kind of shul, that kind of shul, no shul, whatever that looks like for you. Our agenda is that we just introduce you to ways of practicing Judaism that will feel transformative for you and that you can take and bring into your life. Everything we do, I like to say, is a kind of training. And what I mean by that is whatever you're doing with us, even if it's a one-off class and certainly if it's a retreat, the point is never just what's happening there. Mm-hmm. The point is that we're always training you in some way of being, of some way of practice, some way of relating to yourself, your life, your emotions, your experiences, that um, is now a, a tool that you have, you know, that you can take into your life and use to transform and expand and deepen your life. And so, you know, this may not be the path for everybody at the end of the day, and that's totally fine. But what I'd say the vision is, is that it's well known enough that it's the path for everybody who it's right for. You know, and I think that's probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. You know, um, So can we really access people enough and provide enough opportunities that um, that's there? You know, for those who it's right for, and those it's going to speak to, and who want to touch that transformative power. Some in deep, deep ways. You know, they're going to really take on a life practice, and they're going to grow over years and decades. And we want to be an address for them too. And some of them will be in lighter ways, and that's great. They're just going to continue their practice in a way that feels supportive. Amazing. Again, no agenda about that either. But we want to really provide that sort of full spectrum, full ecosystem experience that allow people to uh, take their practice with them throughout their lives and into their lives in all the different ways. And that includes, you know, part of our vision is to have centers for things like families and children, a center for relationships, you know, a center for what this might look like in your work life, right? It's like, how do we bring this kind of practice into the different modalities and aspects of our life? Um, So it's not just staying in that formal practice, but it's really being integrated in how we show up in the world and all the ways we show up into the world. I love it. You know, I, I heard someone say, that really, the real practice is not on the cushion. It's when you get off the cushion and walk outside. You know, that's where. That's right. So training for life. I love that you mentioned that. And 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 here's an interesting point you might want to address. So oftentimes when people think Jewish meditation, my perception is it can get lumped into well, that's just what they do in in this denomination. For example, maybe like esoteric Hasidic practices, or more currently more in Jewish renewal, you know, but reform, you know, right. So talk a little bit about that and, and who, who in your experience is coming to these retreats and what can you say about that? Yeah. Uh, you know, we have a full range of people coming to our retreats and really the full range of Jewish practice, experience, background, different ways of engaging, you know, um, secular, ultra-Orthodox, conservative, reform, Orthodox, you know, unidentified, multi-affiliated, post-denominational. We have people from 18 to 88, you know, full range, although certainly a lot of young adults come and join us. And, you know, our goal is really that the kind of practices we teach and offer can be integrated into whatever way you're doing your Jewish life. Um, I have a great respect for the Jewish Renewal Movement and what they've done and the way they brought some of those practices to the fore. And uh, that's wonderful. And it's great if that's, you know, the kind of Judaism that speaks to you, fantastic. And it's also great from our perspective if uh, you practice differently in some other way. And these practices can be integrated. We've seen people bring our practices 
into many different forms, many, many different forms, you know, of being Jewish. Uh, so our goal is really for it to be accessible in that way. And we're, we're not trying to start another denomination. <laughs> we have no interest in that. We're trying to provide a kind of way of being, a way of relating, a series of practices and ways of relating to our Judaism that can be relevant um, for anyone, whatever their own personal approach to Judaism is and the ways that might shift over the course of their lives. I love it. And on that topic, talk to me a little bit about the Beit Midrash for an Israeli rabbinate, a pluralistic, what is that exactly? Yes, this was a, this is, not was, this is an initiative um, that has a couple of different pieces, but in the early stages of the initiative, in which I was part of it, they took people who are already leaders, rabbis, equivalent to rabbis, you know, in other places and conditions, and we're really doing a kind of think tank with us to really think about what might a new version of, of rabbinic leadership look like in Israel, you know, which was not tied down to the sort of orthodox secular divide, was not the official rabbinate of the government, uh, but was a pluralistic, open way of bringing people together. Uh, they've continued on from that to start, you know, a rabbinical school for people who are, you know, were sort of less experienced, really go through rabbinical, rabbinic training, um, and continuing to do, you know, amazing work, both on the level of rabbinical school, but also on the level of connections and working amidst the Israeli society and sponsoring different initiatives. Um, so really a fantastic, yeah, fantastic initiative. Really uh, so pleased to, to not ha- have been part of, but also to continue to be part of and part of the network. Love it. And, and would you categorize it as a, a pluralistic? Is that how they self-describe? Or pl- definitely, yes. Definitely pluralistic, yes. Okay, love it. And then on that topic of Israel, um, talk a little bit about making Aliyah. And, and, and I mean, if, if you can, in a short form, talk about how it has been for you and your family. Yeah, well, that's a good question. <laughs> it's uh, Aliyah kind of happened to me. It wasn't like I sat down one day and said, I'm making Aliyah. Uh-huh. Uh, so I moved to Israel. I learned there. I got my ordination there. I met my wife there. We got married. Came back to America for a little time while I did my PhD. We came back. Uh, she was pursuing things back in Israel. And so you know, it's really been an unfolding journey. You know, It wasn't a sort of, that's it. I'm going to Israel. I'm a Zionist. Um, it was more how things sort of fell out and fell into place. Um, you know, there's very important work to do here in terms of Jewish spirituality. There's very important work to do here, which we do in terms of Jewish pluralism mm-hmm. and creating space for different modes of Judaism and having respect and love between people doing that. You know, we come, have people come on our retreats from widely different perspectives. And one of the beautiful things I've seen is how our work in the retreats can all of a sudden help people soften mm-hmm. to the other. Mm-hmm. and experience some respect. You know, I remember on an early retreat, we had a Chabad man and a secular woman sat next to each other on retreat. Mm. And at the end of the retreat, they both shared how at the beginning of the retreat, they were sort of like, that's the enemy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like That was their experience of each other in their minds. Mm. And by the end of the retreat, there was this real sense of love and care and that, okay, there's another person who is also seeking what I'm seeking, mm. connection, divinity, openness, love, and is doing it in a different way. So that's a very, very important part of what we do in Israel. You know, Israel is a very, very scary time at this moment, uh, from my perspective, you know. Um, this is not, we're not a political organization, you know, I'll say, you know, Orlev is, is not a political organization. Um, but I worry about uh, Israel and Israeli democracy, our sense of connection, our sense of care, our compassion for 
each other in terms of my fellow citizens and also everybody else in the world, you know, and the people we're in contact with and the Palestinians. And so how can we do that in a way that's really caring for everybody and trying to create solutions that are loving and just, you know, these are huge challenges. I'm not pretending I have some magic solution, but I do think that we're not going to get there if we don't train our hearts and minds to be open and loving and connected. You know, if you don't see our tradition as a resource for respect, for justice, for love, for care, for openness to others, you know, that our tradition is a resource for that openness mm-hmm. rather than uh, a resource only for being closed or exclusive. And so I think that's a very important part of, of what we're offering, you know, in Israel and to the world is the training of our hearts and minds and souls and bodies to be open, to be understanding, to be in dialogue, to be caring, to be looking at every human being as an image of God and being committed to that way of relating to every human being. And that's challenging work, challenging work, but I think, you know, oh, oh, so necessary work everywhere in the world and particularly right here in Israel where I'm living. Absolutely. And it is very important what you're doing there for sure. So, some other things that are coming up. I mean, by the time this podcast comes out, we will be in the middle of the Yamim Noraim on our way to Yom Kippur. I know you're going to be in a, a little mini retreat leading up to Yom Kippur, but I wanted to offer you the opportunity to talk about anything you'd like to share, you know, from your rabbinic perspective. What should we be focusing on or anything else? Yeah, well, I'll say that from the perspective of our practice, we really think about tshuva, you know, the, the deep meaning of tshuva is return. Mm-hmm. Question is, well, return to what? What are we returning to? Uh, we're certainly returning to the divine. You know, it's a clear sense in our tradition. There's another sense, I think, especially in the spiritual side of the tradition, that we're returning to ourselves, who we truly are. Mm-hmm. And we're returning to a way of being in the world which is um, compassionate and loving and not harmful. You know, and we're recognizing the ways that we've been harmful in small ways or big ways and trying to, to reflect on that and apologize for that and repair. And what this practice makes possible is the fact that we might return deeply to who we truly are, which is also a return to the divine, because that's who we truly are. Who we truly are is divine, who we truly are is sacred. We are all in the image of the divine. And our practice allows me to do that, you know, at times, and more or less success in a way that's concrete. We can sort of talk about it. It can be a beautiful idea beautiful intellectual idea and that's wonderful but it's not enough if it's an idea you know the question is how do I actually do that how do I actually live that out how do I return and touch myself so that I feel full and whole and vibrant and open and joyous and connected and caring and perceptive and present and ideas won't do that at least in my experience you know ideas will not do that uh, but practice will do that you know, concrete practices that enable us to train in those ways of being and open to them and return to them again and again and again and again. As you know, and anybody knows who's done meditation, thousands of times you'll return, millions of times you'll return and you'll get lost and you'll return, you'll get lost and return. That's the practice, you know, that's exactly what it looks like. And that is the model for this broader return, right? Of returning to myself, I'm gonna get lost, I'm gonna return. I'm gonna get lost, I'm gonna return. I know what's gonna happen a thousand times. And I know 
and I'm strengthening that muscle of return or my ability to return and to be who I genuinely am. And when I do that and I can show up that way, then I naturally show up in a way which is more caring. I naturally show up in a way which is less reactive. I naturally show up in a way which is more spaciousness and more willingness and ability to hear other people's pain and suffering and to take responsibility for ways that I've caused pain and suffering. So that's what I sort of wish as a, as a hope for myself and for all of us is that we can use this time to practice our ability to return, to discover ourselves again, and to open to this divine nature that's really just waiting for us uh, to open to it. Beautiful. I love it. Okay. So we are starting to wrap up here, but can you give people, you know, that may not be familiar, what's a concrete thing they can do to return? You just, just described something that I understand as having meditated for 25 years and fallen off the path in my meditation. I, I get it intuitively. But for someone that might be less familiar, give them one thing they can actually do. Wait, I'll give you one very concrete practice that I think will help you rediscover yourself. Take a moment, close your eyes, and start to imagine people who love you. Just bring them to mind. One by one. And as you take each one in, just really see their face and sort of bask in their love and care for a moment. Just bask in their love and care. And as you do this, it might be people who strongly love you or you have a deep relationship with, but it's also really important in my experience to think about you know, people who maybe you don't even know very well. Maybe you're just a clerk at some store who was nice to you one day and gave you a smile, you know, or you dropped your wallet and somebody ran over and said, hey, you dropped your wallet. They didn't have to do that. Right? They were just being loving to you. Or I often think about um, parents of childhood friends, you know, I would go over to their house and they'd give me some juice and a cookie. It's like they probably are not thinking about me at all and haven't thought about me in decades. But if they did, I'd probably just be like, oh, James, I hope he's well. You know, nothing doesn't have to be a big deal. We just bring those people to mind. And we slowly, slowly try to recognize and remember our belovedness. That we are held in love and care. And that's a practice you can really do at any moment. And you can do it for a longer period of time. We say before the Shemavi day, Avarabav Tano, you have loved us with a great, massive love. And so as we start to practice and recognize that we are held in that kind of love, we already start to return to ourselves. It's hard to feel beloved in that way and then go out and hurt somebody, right? As you can probably feel in your bones if you felt any sense of that, right? Like the natural response when you feel beloved is to show up with love and care. Beautiful. I love it. Okay. Any other upcoming things you'd like to mention before I ask a couple final questions here, things you want to point people towards? I really just point people towards, again, towards our um, pre-Yom Kippur retreat, preparing our hearts for Yom Kippur. Mm -hmm. It'll be a beautiful virtual retreat. You can go in and out as you need to. You can see that on our website, and we'll send some links over. The Sukkot journey that's coming up, and the sacred action class, which is that integration of social justice work and meditation and spiritual work. Those are upcoming opportunities. We'd love to see you on any of them. Beautiful. Okay. Final question for you, Rabbi, and thank you for your time. What does the Jewish world need now most and why? I think what the Jewish world most needs 
and I think we're one piece of that, but only one piece of that, is accessible Judaism that speaks to our actual everyday concerns, that helps us show up and be the best people we can be in the world. And it needs that because we live in a world where a few things are true. One thing that is true is that there's a lot of healing that needs to happen, a lot of healing. And if our tradition is not giving us the tools for that healing, then it is failing us. Second reason is that we live in a world where there are a lot of options. If our tradition doesn't show up in a way that we can see why it's so important, and we can feel in our bones the impact and significance of it, it's not going to be able to continue to survive. You know, it's not going to be able to continue to support us. I think it has, deeply has its resources, but we have to make those available to people. And I think the third reason is that we live in a Jewish world, which is deeply divided, which is part of a world that is deeply divided, all kinds of different axes, deeply, deeply divided, and getting harder and harder in many ways to talk across those divides. And yet at the same time, I think there is a great deal of commonality. You know, we all want connection. We all want to feel at home. We all want to feel supported. And perhaps there are ways that when we have Jewish ways of being that support those deep needs, those are ways that can make possible connection and genuine dialogue across those differences and across those gaps. Oh man, can you hear that song? Well, Rabbi James, I want to thank you so much for your time. And ladies and gentlemen, I also have to say, having been studying with Rabbi James for the last year, he's a brilliant teacher and he is able to really eloquently describe mental states and the how-to of meditation in a way I've never heard anyone else do with such clarity and alacrity. So if you're certainly new to meditation, I definitely want to encourage you to connect with him or Halev uh, in any of the programs that he's working on. And I always want to end with a blessing. Hashem should bless you, Rabbi James, that your teachings should spread throughout the world and that your love of humanity, which is really revealed in your teachings, should be felt by the people that encounter you, that encounter your retreats and your teachings, and that this subtle shift in awareness of all of us being connected really ripples out and has incredible effects in the world, which it has certainly had in my life personally, and I've seen it in the faces and in the Zooms of all the peoples at the retreats that I've been present for, and that you should have simcha and, of course, shalom in your own life. Amen. Thank you so much, Saul. Such a delight to be here with you. It's my pleasure. And maybe a good seal for all of us. Shana tova. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe. It helps the podcast. Share this with friends and family whom you think would be inspired by the content. And we will see you on our next episode.